Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Nick Pavolarekis of From Active Motif on this show. Usually I introduce our guests at the beginning of each episode, but since this is a special episode, I want to mix things up a little bit and ask you, what is your background and how did you wind up at Active Motif? Thanks for having me. So my background is in uh, computational biology. So I'm a bioinformatician here at Active Motif, but uh, before I joined, uh, I was getting my PhD at UC Irvine, uh, studying the, the memory gland using single-cell uh, sequencing technology. So single-cell RNA-seq, single-cell TAC-seq, uh, and performing integrative analyses uh, between the two uh, data modalities. So what we want to focus on today is bioinformatics, so um, exactly your um, ballpark. Um, so let's say you have an NGS library that you prepared because you did maybe ATAC-seq or CHIP-seq, cut-and-tag or, or cut-and-run even. And you want to run those libraries on an Illumina sequencer. Um, also, let's assume I'm a beginner. Are those libraries fundamentally different, or do I need to take something into account before I put those libraries on the sequencer? Uh, I, I think that it's sort of yes and no. Um, from, from one perspective, they're all just pieces of DNA uh, that need to be sequenced. And so the library generation has happened. We've, we've gotten, uh, you know, experimentally the regions of interest uh, that are associated with the different marks. A tag seek would be open chromatin, um, cut and tag, or, or chip seek, it would be different histone marks or transcription factors. And so um, it's all just pieces of those DNA. But uh, there are considerations to make uh, when actually performing the sequencing. And that has to do with uh, the different read lengths that the, the different assays sort of operate best under when we're trying to quantify the data. But other than that, actually, um, they, they play quite nice and uh, it, it's uh, not too much extra or, or different between those. Yeah, because the fragment sizes that you would expect from each of those assays, they are pretty similar, right? Yeah, yeah. They're they're both, uh, especially like a taxi and uh Cut and tag are both transposase mediated assays in the first place. And so uh, you do get some similarity there. The analysis of those is also quite similar as it goes. But um, yeah, there, there does bear consideration for the uh, uh, like different chip-seq uh, histone marks and things like that. You can have larger insert sizes uh, depending on the mark, you know, larger regions of, of interest. But uh, yeah, it's still within tolerance, I think. So there are different Illumina sequences. Um, most difference in Illumina sequencing more generally have to do uh, with throughput more than anything else. So it's not like the technique itself, but it's just more throughput. And uh, yeah, along those lines, um, yeah, why would you do like rather short read sequencing for Illumina and not something like a long read sequencing with uh, platforms like PacBio? I mean, the information that you would get when you do long read sequencing would be potentially higher, but why would you settle for NGS rather than the long read sequencing? I, I think that's a great question. And it's something that uh, the field has uh, spent a lot of time on. And so uh, short read sequencing is really valuable because uh, you can get, you're sort of taking a trade off of the, the length of the region that you're sequencing per individual time. Uh, it, it's a shorter fragment, but you get many, many more of those fragments. And it also, the shorter they are, you 
can actually get um, really high fidelity in regards to the error rate as well. In, in a lot of sequencing platforms, the longer you go down the read, the more cycles you have, uh, the quality tends to dip. And so what we get is, you know, many millions and millions of these short reads that, uh, you know, the, the, the many of them add up to uh, great coverage across uh, really even, you know, regions of, of interest within the sequencing. Long read sequencing uh, does, it is certainly useful. Uh, it has its place, I think, times, uh, you know, splice centric questions where you're really interested in, um, physically larger places of the of the genome and, and that signal, uh, or in the case of RNA-seq and, and splice variants, you want to make sure you're hitting those other, you know, splice junctions and things like that. Uh, Illumina sequencing is, is by and large still the largest stakeholder in, in sequencing, both at our company, that's what we do uh, at Active Motif, as well as uh, I think in general, it's very popular. And so um, they each have their pros and cons, but I, I'm certainly uh, here for, for short reads, so. Yeah, I think the, the thing that you are referring to is that what you're interested in attack and cut and tag is like two things. It's counting the number of fragments and the location. And you somehow just need to know where it is. And it doesn't really need to be like a long read sequencing because you don't need the exact like sequence information of those places that you want that you need, right? Exactly. Yeah, you're okay with distributing your, your signal. The molecules... Uh, you know, DNA that you made with the library can be larger than the, you know, read length uh, for the short read sequencing. And, and there's ways to get at back at those um, average fragment sizes or insert sizes, but uh, it ends up being quite powerful this way. Yeah. So yeah, when I was in the lab, there were like other sequences around that are nowadays. I mean, uh, Lumina is already uh, always in, evolving and then like, uh, yeah, putting out new sequences so could you maybe give us a general idea of the different sequences that are currently used and maybe that are the most useful at the moment yeah absolutely uh, just as a piece of history too so when i first started in, in undergrad we were doing what was called pyro sequencing and 454 sequencing which is sort of a precursor to illumina um, all of them involve uh, at least for illumina platforms um, the addition so you have your DNA uh, bound to the flow cell. So there's little complementary probes that uh, stick to the Illumina barcodes that we've uh, uh, you know, generated our libraries with. And then you flow different bases, uh, you know, nucleotides through this flow cell. And when they anneal, uh, there's a camera that picks up a light that is actually emitted when the, the base binds. And so um, all, you know, most, uh, if not all of the Illumina platforms operate on that, on that principle, there might be a couple that escape that, that I don't know about. So I don't want to say something with, with too, too strong, but, um, definitely the ones that we use. And so, uh, yeah, the, what this lets you do is you get millions or, or sometimes in, in the case of the NovaSeq, uh, which is, um, one of the more powerful machines that. Illumina provides and what we have in house here, uh, you know, on the order of billions of, of individual uh, puncti that the camera picks up and, and reads such that, um, you know, you don't need it uh, for most assays, you don't need a billion reads uh, for, for an experiment. And so uh, what this lets us do at this level of throughput at the level of a run, we can get many different um, libraries uh, sequenced together at the same time and really, uh, you know, work on those larger uh, projects that we get in-house, you know, many samples at once within the same assay, uh, things like that, as long as our barcoding scheme and, and demultiplexing is set up such that that's still feasible. 
So the innovation really comes from getting more of those pixels in one flow cell. Yeah, I, I think the, the the density of that, the cameras, and also the um, molecular nature of uh, how they how they bind to it is really important. So after you have run the sequencing, and uh, yeah, you get a bunch of data out of there, and this is maybe the, the biggest. Uh, one of the, the bigger questions in, in, in sequencing is, is, is the big data that you get. So what does the data look like that comes off of the sequencer? Uh, why are the files so big? Yeah, so so I mentioned already uh, a little bit that there's a camera that's taking all of these images, and that's how the sequencing is actually performed. And so uh, I have one, imaging data, is um, it starts as quite, quite dense. Uh, eventually, it makes it to a format off the machine uh, called a BCL file, uh, which is sort of the, we, we think of as the raw, raw data uh, off of the sequencing machine. And the next step is to translate, um, you know, that, that formatted raw data into, back into the, the sequence of the reads. So the ATs, Gs and Cs uh, that are then associated with each library. And so uh, these are text files, uh, like, Kind of like a word document but more simple than that not not so many uh, frills but it still is just encoding text in it and so we need to have many millions of lines of text uh, per file that's associated with each uh library that was sequenced so as as our group uh traditionally does about 30 million reads uh, per per assay uh per library um that translates to Uh, four times that is the number of lines that we would have in in, in that text file, more or less, in the in the, in the fast queue. And so, uh, yeah, that that adds up to be quite a lot. That's a lot of lines. That's a lot of text. And so, although each individual amount is not so much, uh, the sum is is quite large. And so, uh, depending on things, you can you know, for in the cases of like high C or something like that, you run the hundreds of millions of reads or billions of reads. Those those files get quite large. Uh, so. Even it, if it's it's only text, but a lot of text is still big. <laughs> Absolutely, it adds up quick. Uh, can you maybe talk also, because you touched upon this uh, uh, before, uh, can you maybe talk a bit about multiplexing? Yeah, absolutely. So, so multiplexing is is sort of the it's a it's a, a broad term to sort of capture uh, how many things you can tell the difference between at a time, uh, basically. So, in the case of sequencing. Uh, what we have off of the machine is sort of this hurricane of, of, of reads, these sequences um, that have all these ATs, Gs, and Cs that correspond to the genome, uh, uh, the site in the cell that they, you know, were, were derived from. Uh, but we also, in the process of library preparation, um, add barcodes to these reads. And so these are uh, smaller uh, sort of adapter sequences that serve as like a pointer, like a landmark. Uh, for the software that we use to figure out what reads are associated with each library. So the, the, the process workflow here is we, you generate a library and, and every fragment um, of, of DNA as a part of that library prep has this anchors barcode sequence on it. And so what that lets us do is when we're trying to um, demultiplex the data, which is the step of taking the base call file from raw from the sequencer and generating what are called fastq files, which are the now the text files of the sequences. Um, we can take and say, okay, well, we know the sequence of the read, uh, and here we see this barcode. And then we're going to look at the next read. Does it have this barcode or not? 
And, and what the software will do is it will just collect and group all of the reads that have the, the barcode that we tell it, and it will group them together into one file. And so that's also how they get quite large too. And so, um, yeah, but it, it's really helpful. Uh, if there's conflicts in that, then you can have big problems because you don't know, you know, which read is associated with what sample. And, you know, it's, it's critically important to, you know, have that confidence. And so you, you'd have to kind of go back to the drawing board and um, redo the sequencing because, you know, that data would otherwise be untenable. And so uh, it's very important. But I think this is also where the real magic happens in sequencing, right? Yeah, I, I think so. It's it's pretty incredible. Um, all of this, you know, as I was learning, it's just like, it doesn't feel real that we can actually sort of bring to order and form from, from so much data and so much information. Uh, as we get a little bit later in here too, um, we're talking about what we do with the FASTQ files now that we have them. That's That to me is, is still uh, pretty amazing. And so I, I do enjoy it. So of course, one of the first things you want to know is whether your sequencing run worked and if the data is of good quality. So the next step obviously is quality control. So which parameters do you look at in the QC step and which software, maybe also packages are you using? Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. That is that is the first and most important step. And so we use a suite of software um, uh, to sort of assay uh, the quality of our data uh, before we even begin uh, analysis of a project. So this is just off, you know, hot off the presses. Uh, what are we working with? And uh, the first is what's called uh, FastQC. It, it's very standard in its use, and it's basically just a way to say, okay, well. For all of the reads of um, each file or, or sample that I have, how how well did the sequencer perform, and, and how does that library look? So it can give us information about the, the quality scores of each base call. So the Q in FastQ is is you know stands for quality, um, and so each base uh, of the sequence, each A, T, G, and C, has an associated um, score for how confident basically the sequencing machine was in that base being actually that call. So is, how high of a confidence is it that that A is actually an A, that C actually is C, so on and so forth. And so uh, if, if the quality for whatever reason is very low, then we would then have to look at potential trimming options or was there a failure with this run? I mentioned a little bit earlier too for, for long read sequencing uh, and how the quality can dip the further you go down the, the read length. So here too, it opens up the door to, all right, well, the last five bases did you know not great here. Do we need to trim those off for the analysis or or what? Um, it also gives us measures of the duplication rate. So things like uh, telling the difference between PCR duplicates uh, within a library and or a fragment that had you know um, gotten sequenced more more so that that sort of needs to be squashed back down so we're not overinflating our, our quantification. Um, also, things like adapter content, so contaminating sequences in the read that might need to also be trimmed. So that's that's what FastQC does for us. Another another software suite that we use is called FastQ Screen. Uh, so this is basically what it does: it takes a small piece of the uh, FastQ file and just aligns it to a bunch of different genomes, a bunch of different animal genomes. So human, mouse, rat, cow, um, mycoplasma, uh, things like that. And so what this lets us do is is assay for um, contamination from from other sources than than the species of interest, and so that's that's really useful. 
Uh, I mentioned mycoplasma to, to get at that contamination because that can be indicative of uh, one, you have some problems probably in your cell culture, um, but also that could affect the, the interpretation of the data, the downstream data quality. Uh, if you have things like a xenograft model uh, where you've taken human cells and put them into a mouse or something like that, you would want to know, I think, um, how, how clean of a prep you had done. And, and this can help you get that answer as well. And so, um, you know, these two combined, we do on every, every single sample, uh, you know, right when it comes off and um, even before we're, we're grouping for a project uh, to, to begin analysis. So the second one would then rather be a control of the, yeah, the wet lab experiment, right? And the first one would rather be a, a control for the data. So if you have an error in the second one, you would rather go back to the wet lab and do it again. And the first one, could you then do something in bioinformatics to fix it or would any error here be like the consequence be that you need to go back to the wet lab and do it again? Um, yeah, I, I think uh, that's a, that's a good question. Definitely, you're correct about the the FASTQ screen, the looking for different species, because that would say you know depending along the workflow, you might have to remake the library, or uh, that can also help you catch a, a barcode conflict that might not have been there before, uh, or either that you didn't notice before rather. And so um, that's that's yeah, usually a lab centric question where. The quality and adapter content are things that can be um, amended bioinformatically. Uh, we we have you know tools in place to to handle that. At a certain point, uh, it does kind of have to go back to to the lab. Uh, but usually, first would be you know trying to resequence it or something like that before you know throwing the baby out with the bathwater, uh, so to speak, and, and going too far back. There's we we can there's additional QCs we can do downstream of this too that we would probably check before we um, really initiated that whole process uh, for, for, you know, back to square one, but uh, definitely we can do some things without it. So we already talked about it that in NGS reads are not very long. So you need to align the reads to a reference genome. So one um, thing that is necessary is obviously that the research and researcher needs a reference genome, but was, what do you do if you don't have one? That's so that's that's pretty um, it, it happens. It, it's an important case because, you know, most of the time we can lean on these really well annotated, well published um, reference genomes where we have not only the sequence, but also the annotation of the sequence. So those are the two major parts that are needed uh, to perform like a full analysis. And so uh, you need to know where pieces are, uh, where they belong when you're trying to perform that alignment, um, and then what that piece actually is. So is it associated with the gene? Uh, is it the, you know, what features of that gene? Is it an intron, an exon, a promoter region, things like that. And so when, when researchers are uh, operating in model systems that don't have those great annotations, then you really do have to do some, some digging to try and find um, alternative options. And, and unfortunately, you can't always guarantee that what is, feasible for the the regular you know human mouse etc experiments uh, analysis wise might not be supported with uh, these sort of non-alternative or uh, not standard genomes because the annotations usually are not so good so people do they'll, they'll find another species that's very close uh, if that's the case and sort of uh, bite the bullet and say well uh, this is as close as I could get, and I'll, I, I know that there's a lot of similarity here, and you can always double check things later and, and follow up. Or um, if you have other data uh, within that species, then there are tools available to perform genome assemblies uh, for it. So you can have, um, 
this isn't something that, that we do, but in, in the field, there's uh, there's there's ways to take uh, yeah other data modalities and create a, a reference. And so um, options do exist because somebody you know somebody has to do it uh, first, and uh, you, you have the unfortunate luck, and then after that, everybody gets it easier after you. But um, it is possible. So, what is the output of alignment once successfully performed, and what are the next steps then? Yeah, so alignment is the process of uh, taking those raw FastQ file reads, so just the the base uh, calls that we have, and assigning them to their their home or their their location in in the genome. And so, uh, the analogy that I like to make for this is like uh, you have a you have a library. Uh, that gets hit by a tornado or a hurricane and every page of every book is sort of ripped out uh, and it's your job then to uh, put all of those books back together in the library and, and build that again so uh, that would be basically impossible one to do by hand uh, for one person but also uh, without knowing what the actual um, books are it would take you another lifetime or two just to get that together and so um, if we could, for whatever reason, have a, a known copy of so, okay, well, we know that these are all the books that were in the library in the first place. And so all you have to do is just take the page and, and match it uh, to to a, another copy that has them all in the correct order, then your job gets a lot easier. And so when we're doing our, our sequencing alignment, it's kind of a similar problem where we have these, you know, millions of, of unassigned just sequences of, of DNA. And I need to know where that sequence belongs along the, the genome, which is, you know, very, very large. And so there's a lot of you know computational tools that uh, streamline this process quite a lot, and in conjunction with a, a well annotated reference genome, um, can make relatively short work of it, given the how enormous that task actually is um, when you think about it. And so what that what that process gives us is a, a file called a BAM file. Uh, well, actually, I mean it gives us a a SAM file, and then we binarize that and turn it into a BAM file. But um, what this is is now we have those sequencing uh, reads uh, in there, but we now know where they actually belong to in the genome. There are pointers that say, okay, well, this is a chromosome, this um, blah, blah, blah. And so um, what we can do with that is, so now we have our data aligned and we know where it belongs and we can begin uh, what's called quantification. And so this this goal of this is, is sort of uh, dependent on the assay, but at the end of the day, you're really trying to say, okay, well, I now know where my data belongs, uh, but are there interesting places that this data has accumulated uh, as compared to, to background? Um, so I'm gonna kind of focus this um, next point on what I'm just gonna call peak-based assays. So things like attack, chip, and, and cut and tag, where the goal is to find regions of interest along the genome where we have an accumulation of these reads that have aligned. Um, and, and this process is what's called peak calling. So, so peaks are basically just areas of statistically significant accumulation of reads. If I were to just take each each read that we had sequenced and stack them up um, one on top of each other in places that they had um, aligned, uh, the height of that um, is the signal at that place. So, so how in attack-seq, how open was that region of the genome? In chip-seq, how strong uh, was that signal for that histone mark? So on and so forth. And so I want to know, well, is that more than just background? Is is that actually a place where you know this is this is a significant or, or interesting uh, location to the biology of the cells that I had had thrown in there? Um, and so peak calling, we we use for that a software called uh, Max, 
Um, so max two, max three, there's, there's different versions. And, and what that lets us do is say, okay, well, we have some measure of background either within the sample or as a separate control file. Um, so how does my experimental uh, library compare to that? And do we have places where that accumulation is interesting? Um, yeah. Yeah, you already jumped uh, over some of my questions. <laughs> oh, so, my uh, so if you have the peaks and uh, you are talking to background, do you always need like a for chip? You would usually do like a, an input seek to to get like the uh, feeling for the background. But can you also do this internally, or do you always have to rely on an external or a second like sample to know what's background? Yeah, I, I think uh, you're exactly right in, in ChipSeq that we do use uh, input control for it. And so this serves as, uh, yeah, basically like a negative control for for signal in the absence of specific pull down of your mark of interest. And so we can use that as a measure of background for peak calling in that case. Um, but you don't actually, you don't need it. It helps. It's a, you know, uh, but there, there are ways to do it without that. And TaxSeq is exactly an example of that. So here instead of having a separate file that serves as, as the background control, it basically learns a background within each sample. So it says, okay, well, uh, it, it takes sort of an unbiased broad view of um, the overall signal across the whole genome, and then gets a measure of what it decides is, is background from that. And then it looks for places that pass that threshold of, of read depth or, or signal at that site and say, okay, well, here within the sample, um, this is what we think is, or it thinks is, is important or interesting. So you said that you use Max for peak calling. Are there other uh, packages available, or and what is maybe the advantage of Max over the others? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Max uh, that that suite uh, is really useful for um, peak calling in places where the uh, signal is kind of narrow. Uh, and so it's a you know not really long broad sweeping regions of of interest. Um, we use that for you know basically transcription factors in ChipSeq. Uh, that's the peak color that we use. Different histone marks, H three K twenty seven acetyl, we use there. Um, but the uh, there are other times where we'll look um, at broader marks, like I think H three K twenty seven trimethyl, uh, where we have. Um, regions of interest on the, on the genome that are, you know, going to be much, much wider. And so there, there's a, there's an alternative peak color that we use called Sicer. That's a more, more tolerant to, to that. Um, because I, I mentioned too, we're trying to, you're trying to figure out the difference between background and, and, and signal. And so when your signal is really broad, then max doesn't perform so well and, and thinks that some places are, are background or it'll give you many little peaks, uh, rather than one large one within that site. So it, it does depend. I also uh, recently saw that there is like now Max 3. Um, so is this an update to Max 2 or is this like something completely different? I, I think you can think of it like an update. Um, it's uh, it's like, yeah, it's like an update, like a new iPhone is, is an update. So it's not a software update for your old phone. It's a new phone. It's still an iPhone, but it's got some extra bells and whistles on it um, too. And so, uh, yeah, as with anything, um, we try and ensure that you know we're keeping up with with our the way that we analyze the data and the way that the, the field is analyzing data. And so we want to be consistent with that and also make sure that researchers are knowing that 
you know, best practices are in place uh, for their data analysis. And so with that comes decisions like, you know, do we use Max3 uh, for it? The updates come with bug fixes, extra features, um, better ways or extra knobs to turn when quantifying your data that can be important. And so uh, definitely we do a review of these tools uh, and a comparison between new ones and, and what we do have and, and make a decision uh, if that's worth it. I think in the case of Max3, we, we are using that um, now for, for our, a lot of our pipelines. And so uh, that's been treating us pretty well. Mm -hmm. So the data is still in a text file now, but you got like information where your peaks are and it's not very handy to look at, um, analyze or even know if the quality of the data is good. Is there a standard QC of data at this stage? How does someone know that they have performed like a good peak calling? That's, that's a great question. Um, there are some measures of, uh, you know, quality of an analysis at this stage, uh, both technical and then I think biological as well. And so uh, first, you know, one, we, we analyze a lot of, you know, data of these kind. And so we as a team uh, have some internal thresholds that we use to define, you know, is this uh, good data or, or bad data? Um, there are different consortia like ENCODE and things like that, that also publish guidelines for data quality that we use. And so we'll look at the total number of peaks called uh, in the case of the different assays. And we'll also look at something uh, called the FRIP score, which is the fraction of reads and peaks. And that gives us a measure of like the signal to noise ratio. So we're, we're looking at how much uh, peaks were called. So, so how, what's our data density? And then uh, how specific was that signal with the FRIP score? I think with number of peaks, more isn't always better, right? So <laughs> you you have to be somewhere in the middle, right? Because if you just have like, um, I don't know, a very high number of peaks, then it's not maybe not so specific. In the Absolutely. Because um, what you want to avoid is, you know, like rampant, you know, transposition in the case of a taxi. At a certain point, yes, it would say that something had gone wrong and, and the library prep may be, you know, incubation step or things like that. Or in the case of cut and tag, Uh, because this is, is this is a transposase mediated assay, but you're still looking at these histone marks, you want to make sure that the you know the transposase wasn't added too highly, and then you just get a taxi library instead of uh, you know cut and tag. And so uh, the other the other side of this coin, not necessarily from a technical data perspective, is also uh, some sanity checks in regards to um, does do the places that we see data at make sense. There are certain control regions that we'll look at housekeeping genes where it's like, all right, well, for this mark or, or for the signal, um, we should expect to see, you know, open chromatin here uh, pretty much always in every cell. So we'll, we'll do checks like that. Um, we'll also, uh, you know, downstream, there are some other options as well. So after the peaks are called, the real fun starts because now data can be looked at and integrated with other data sets and advanced analysis can be run so what kind of downstream analysis are usually done and can you maybe give us an example which kind of tools are useful here yeah absolutely so um we have our peaks called we know there are regions uh, along the genome at chromosome five from base pair you know 10 million to 10 million and, and 60 right let's let's say but i want to know um what genes that's associated with or other features of the genome, things that get back to the actual biology. And so we perform an annotation of these features. I mentioned that in the alignment step, how, how important that is. Uh, and so that lets us now get back to these sort of biologically centric 
questions of are there different pathways that are being modulated by um you know our experimental condition of interest or things like that and so a lot of this is contingent on the design of the you know the researcher that we're working with or for this project and so if they have a drug treatment in in a kind of cell or they have uh, patient samples and, and what are otherwise healthy individuals and they're running a comparison. Oftentimes you're interested in, um, you know, what, what regions of the genome are different between those groups. And so I want to say, okay, well, are there, are there genes uh, that all of a sudden open up chromatin wise uh, in this disease that are otherwise inaccessible and, you know, kind of not, not so active and uh, otherwise healthy person. And so we would perform um, like a, a differential analysis. The, a lot of the times the, the software that we would use for this is called DEC2. Uh, it's been around for, for a while. It's, it's definitely tried and true um, and is, is well regarded in the field because it, it, it has a lot of options for the base assumptions of the models that we can use for the, the differential test. But in essence, we're really just saying, okay, well, I have uh, sample group one and I want to compare it to sample group two. Uh, what regions are statistically different from that. And then we can perform, you know, this for every region that was called, which can be, you know, an order of tens of thousands, and then do some, some p-value corrections for, for multiple testing to make sure we're not overinflating those values just by, you know, how many times we're actually sampling out of the bag and, and performing that test. Um, there's also things like uh, PCA analysis or uh, different correlations and, and clusterings where you want to say, okay, well, at a very high level, how do I visualize my data? How different are my samples from each other? Not necessarily on a peak by peak basis, but rather uh, wholesale and holistic. Um, and so we'll, we'll use analyses like that. Um, yeah, heat maps, clustering, visualizations. Um, but ultimately, uh, you know, these are these are tools to enable those next questions. Um, and we want to know. Okay, we go back to the genes and say, okay. Uh, are there certain pathways that are grouped up and down? In case of our RNA-seq analysis, we'll do some, some pathway analysis and say, okay, well, this is turning up, this is turning down. A TAC-seq will let us do things like motif um, analysis for the differentials. So I mentioned, let's say all these regions open up uh, in the disease. Uh, this, these are now places where it's possible for transcription factors or other DNA binding factors to, to bind and interact. And so do we see consensus motifs associated with those differentially open regions, um, which is often quite exciting. And then you can follow up with a beautiful chip experiment uh, to, <laughs> to get it back at exactly that factor too, which is, which is always very cool. So when I imagine like the work of a bioinformaticians, I always see like you sitting in front of like two screens, all those columns of numbers and, and, and signs running down the screen. But what the researcher really wants to look at is like, is my peak there? Did it vanish at like my gene of interest? So what you also can do is like load the, the file that you got from the peak calling into the genome browser and just look at the peaks, right? Is this something that you also do? <laughs> Or is it just like, you're just like uh, do the number crunching? Uh, absolutely. Um, that, that is really important. I think it's important for quality control. I, I, I had mentioned a little earlier about looking at these certain housekeeping sites. And so um, that's that's an important step to, to visualize the data. Numbers in a sheet are, are one thing, but it's not actually always a useful way to, to anchor yourself on, on what your data looks like. And so those visualizations are really important. Um, we use things like uh, the UCSC genome browser or IGB or IGV for our visualizations. Um, and yeah, they're, they're really helpful. Uh, 
when we're performing an analysis, um, I'm not always a domain expert in the biology uh, that they're they're doing there, and so I'll generate some some visualizations of regions that were just interesting uh, or that ca caught my eye from the differential analysis, kind of naive to um, what the biology is. Sometimes if there's pathway analyses uh, involved, then we can get at that a little bit more. Um, but yeah, ultimately the goal of, of our analysis is to enable the researcher to get back to their biology and their question of interest. They had a goal in mind when they were uh, setting up this experiment and, and, and working with us to, to generate these, these libraries. And so we want to make sure that the analysis that we're performing is in line with that and can um, help them get back at answering the questions that they want. And so um, when there are opportunities for it, you know, we, we get to sit down with the customer and, you know, say, okay, well, we just gave you a whole ton of data. Where do you go to actually start asking your questions again? And, and that's always uh, quite fun. I do enjoy that. So now we have taken a journey through the life of the data from library to like visualiza visualization. Um, did we miss something along those uh, along this journey, or um, do you have something to add? No, I, I think I think that was a, a great coverage of, of everything. There's always more. There's there's many little rabbit holes and uh, you know avenues to travel down here. But um, yeah, the important thing that that we consider, I'll just reiterate, is you know. The, the data analysis can be kind of um, dense or not very accessible. And so it's it's really important to us to make sure that uh, we're, we're handing off something that's intelligible and, and actionable on the, on the researcher's side so that they can um, do with it whatever they would like to and, and know that that data has been analyzed in a way that is, is rigorous and um, the way that it should be. Uh, so uh, we're always happy to help and, and, and talk about that. So. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Nick, for your time and for being on the show. Of course. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you. So please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.